from Griffith University. I'm Nance Haxton, and these are Remarkable Tales. Only a few years after graduating from her Griffith business degree, Elise Giles is now one of the leading young minds encouraging us to look to Asia for our future. Last year, she was recognised as an Asian Australia young leader, having worked and studied across Asia, including Vietnam, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Singapore and South Korea. She grew up in outback Queensland with little interest in the region, but credits opportunities provided by the Griffith Honours College, including a pivotal study trip to South Korea, combined with an Asian studies course, for catapulting her deep interest and love for Asia. As Elise tells us on this episode of Remarkable Tales, her travels eventually led back to Melbourne as a manager with Asia Link Business to facilitate those links and opportunities for others in the Australian community. Returning from Vietnam to Australia just as COVID-19 hit, Elise says Australia has much to learn from emerging economies such as Vietnam for the incredible success they had combating the pandemic crisis. Elise Giles, welcome to Remarkable Tales. Thanks very much for having me. It's wonderful to speak to you in chilly Melbourne today. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, having done your degree in Griffith, has this been a bit of a rude shock, the, the Melbourne winter? It certainly has. I'm trying to plan my escape back to Queensland just for for the summer that is um, winter in um, in Brisbane. So very keen to head back and have a bit of sun, but I think I am stuck in Melbourne. Yes, there are, of course, the other opportunities in Melbourne, of which you've got this amazing position. Can you tell us a bit about that and how you ended up there? Absolutely. So I am at AsiaLink Business. I'm their Capability Development Manager uh, and basically, AsiaLink Business is the national centre for building Asia capability. And it's really interesting, you know, growing up in regional Queensland and then to, I guess, working at a, at a national level. And our role is building Australia's workforce to become and build their Asia capability. So whether it's doing business in Asia, if they haven't done that yet, or how to sustain doing business with Asian counterparts, that's kind of the key role and some of the key areas for me is around engaging with Vietnam and also Indonesia. How did you envision this? How did this come to be? Was this something you thought about during university when you were doing your Bachelor of Business? I think that it's something that's evolved over time for me. Asia certainly wasn't on my periphery, wasn't anything that I would actually consider doing when I was growing up, but it was actually coincidence that I put down as a, as a course one that was optional, how to do uh, business in Asia. And it was run by an incredible academic, uh, Peter Woods at Griffith. And that was, I guess, a moment where I realised, oh, what's what's Asia? What's the potential there? <laughs> so that was uh, initiated a couple of study exchanges abroad to Asia. And then my world exploded. And it was that transformational experience from engaging with Asia that I knew that there was a connection, but never did I realise that connection would bring me back to Melbourne, working in Asia capability, particularly trying to build an Australian workforce that is capable engaging with our Asian counterparts. 
much as you say it was a coincidence, it sounds like you also grabbed that opportunity. Is that part of what going to university is about is sometimes taking that, you know, road less travelled or one you hadn't expected? Yeah, absolutely. So I was really fortunate, actually. I was in the Griffith Honours College at the time and I got a call. It was at the end of my first year and the manager said, there's this amazing opportunity to go to South Korea. And actually it was at the same time the president of North Korea had died and was passing on the the leadership to his son. And there was an opportunity to do a study exchange. And I remember my, it was my first time, even I hadn't even been overseas. And I thought, well, what have I got to lose? So I took the opportunity and did a month in South Korea studying, living with South Koreans. Uh, and it, it was just, yeah, phenomenal. And you've worked in all sorts of places in Asia since then. It sounds like it really did open up quite a few opportunities, much as Vietnam is is closest to your heart in some ways. But Indonesia, Hong Kong, Singapore? Yeah, no, it really did. So I, I actually returned back from doing study in South Korea and then I was fortunate that Griffith actually supported me and mentored me to put an application for the Prime Minister's Australia Asia Award. And I was successful with that and went to Hong Kong and studied and also worked there. And then I returned back to Australia and worked in government for five years and really fulfilling roles in social policy. But then I, I in the back of my mind, I always thought I'm still very interested in Asia. You know, the dy- dynamic element of Asia and the richness and the culture and things. And so I decided that you know, I had this this skill set that I could contribute elsewhere and Vietnam then came up as a possible opportunity. And I took it because I see there's two kind of paths you can take. There's the first path that's the easy, you know, most travel path. And then there's that second path and it's that path of continuous learning. And I think that when we look at those two paths, I'm always looking for something that's quite different and exciting. And so I chose that second path of continuous learning and landed in Vietnam and then went across to Indonesia. And the experience that I had there was so rich and transformational for me personally and professionally. And then come back to Melbourne and I guess looking at Asia a bit differently, but, you know, looking at our national impact and how I can also offer those opportunities to other Australians. So tell us about this this project that took you to Vietnam. It was actually to do with preventing disease spread. Is, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So essentially the role that I took was a part of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trades Australian Volunteer Program. So it's essentially a skilled volunteering program that you have to have experience that you can then go in country and build the capacity of local staff. So you're not going over there, you know, taking other roles. You're actually going to enhance local jobs and build the capacity of local people. So my role really, you know, building upon the skill set that I had built in Queensland, particularly in the Queensland government in in those policy settings, was using that to build the policy skill set of a Vietnamese government department. And that department actually was responsible, funny enough, for the national efforts to prevent infectious disease threats and outbreaks. It's and so pretty topical at the moment, isn't it, Elise? I couldn't look past it and it was only quite recently as well. You must look back on that and go, what a bit of fortuitous timing given what the year has presented since. Absolutely. And, you know, little did I think that, you know, my role in terms of building capacity would actually play out how it is. And and now, you know, my former colleagues in this team are essentially at the forefront of Vietnam's 
incredibly successful, you know, result to to combat COVID with little to no deaths recorded and very little outbreaks within within the community. So it really speaks credit to the team in Vietnam's their efforts at a national level, but also, you know, more broad than that, their their response. I was reading about this, Elise. It's really been quite a phenomenal success story in Vietnam. It must be one of the most successful countries in the way they have combated the spread of uh, COVID-19. And when you think that they share a border with China, that's, it's pretty incredible. Absolutely is. And I think that I was actually able to firsthand witness um, the very quick and swift action the Vietnamese government took. I was actually in Vietnam in January visiting my Vietnamese family for Vietnamese um, Lunar New Year, which is called Tet, and that was early January. And really the masks started coming up very quickly. The government response was was really phenomenal, shutting down borders. They didn't let the, the children return to school. So a lot of the Vietnamese primary and high school students did not even go to school from January right up until now. And already Vietnam has opened for business. They've returned, you know, life is normal. They're in the future, you know, we're already months behind. So Vietnam is already, it's such a dynamic region and it's already, I guess its response validates really what it is as a nation and as a country. And I really think that we've got a lot to learn. Can we learn from Vietnam? I mean, when you think of the struggles they face in so many other aspects that we probably hear about in the media here more, the the, the poverty, the, the struggles with the health system, it really could have been a disaster, couldn't it? An absolute disaster. Yeah, I think that, you know, developing countries certainly do face greater impacts when we have infectious disease outbreaks. But actually, the thing that I like to reflect on in terms of Vietnam is that 70% of Vietnam's population is young people. So under the age of 35, you know, they're experiencing GDP growth of 7%, or well, they were until, until COVID. So when we're looking at how a country like that responds, it's the mindset of the people. It's also their skill, their skills and fortuitous, you know, nature that they see opportunities. So while many people stereotypically think of Vietnam as being quite disadvantaged. Actually, it's ploughing ahead. It's actually jumping over what we're doing in the West and really the the returns speak for themselves. Is it about coming down really quickly, really harshly? Is that the lesson we can learn from Vietnam or is it a bit more complex than that? I certainly think it's a bit more complex Mm, than that, mm. but I think it's a uh, a quick response but also very tailored, very intelligently played out. And even we see with Vietnam's health ministry put out a a very a fun health prevention campaign. And it was via a video that went viral. Over 40 million people have viewed it. And it talks about how to wash hands and things like that. So their creative responses to COVID have, have also worked. So it's creativity, it's innovation, it's collaboration, it's everything we want to do. Uh, and, and that's why also we do promote engaging, Australians engaging with Vietnam. It really does show that there are cultural aspects to this as well as health aspects. You know, we, we need to think about the culture in which we are communicating these vital messages. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. absolutely. So when you were at school, I just wonder, did you ever think that you'd be travelling all around Southeast Asia and, and dealing with these sort of big world concepts? I don't think that Asia was really came to the forefront of my mind and, you know, didn't very, it didn't even do much of geography or anything, but I think that I was reflecting on this, that the role of leaders and, you know, when I was 
young and going through school, you know, I grew up in a, in a small town community of 2,000 uh, in population. And actually, my dad um, was the sergeant of, of police and the only policeman uh, in the community. So leadership really was fundamental to my childhood. And, you know, we grew up having barbecues at the CEO of the Shire and the head of the ambulances, you know, and, and things like that. So for me, I think while Asia wasn't on the periphery from a young age, leadership always was. And so when I look at my roles that I've had in Vietnam and Indonesia, you know, leadership has been key to that. And it's whether it's identifying local grassroots issues or looking at, you know, issues of great importance to our nation or to the region, I, I really think that those fundamental skills growing up has really served me well in being able to, you know, make an impact. And it sounds like Griffith did open up those doors once you'd made that decision to continue your study. They opened the doors to, to other opportunities. Yeah, you know, I think that my university studies at Griffith combined with actually a lot of the extracurricular engagement that I had while I was at uni, so through the Griffith Honours College, through the Griffith Business Student Association, and then there's also, they have a leadership program too. I guess it was through those additional programs that Griffith offers that really, I guess, allowed me to develop my skills as a wholesome leader, not just looking in the academics, to really think about, well, how can I contribute? But actually, what at my core do I most value or do I most love? And I think that that's what my degree at Griffith University allowed me to really understand is what I'm really passionate about and to work in something where I'm passionate and that I love and where I guess your energy can be best invested. And is that something you would recommend for other students going into degrees now? I mean, there's so much pressure, isn't there, to, you know, have a job and the, the monetary pressures are there. But but it sounds like that extracurricular life at university is still really important and, and actually valuable for skills that you use in the workforce later on. I think the extracurricular is really what makes people stand out. I think that you can have, you know, the greatest of academic achievements but actually in this highly competitive workforce and you know looking at engaging virtually you need to be able to have a variety of diverse skill sets and that's engaging globally having leadership skills but also I think there is an element of just getting things done you know we do so much just talking but actually you know all these extracurricular engagement that you do is running initiatives bringing a collective with you and that can really help set a foundation for many young people to translate into their future careers or to to bring with them as they're looking to get their first job that they actually have evidence that they've been able to, you know, use what they've learned at university and actually implement it, whether it's at a community level throughout their studies. It's very valuable. It sounds like those skills are something you've certainly kept using. But tell us a bit about the volunteering uh, programs that you're doing as well. This is on top of your work, of course, as well. Some of the other additional roles that I do, and I spoke earlier, I'm on the board of the Australia-Vietnam Young Leadership Dialogue. And this essentially is a not-for-profit independent organisation, all run purely on volunteers. And so this... I really got involved in this organisation when I was living in Vietnam because the idea is that if we're able to invest in young leaders from across both nations, what opportunities exist there and how can we, I guess, improve the prosperity of both Vietnam and Australia, leveraging the bilateral? But, but broader than that, I think the purpose is really we have shared challenges and if we collaborate together, 
we can help each other address the shared challenges, not only at our own country level, but, you know, globally and regionally. So I'm very passionate about this organisation and spend all my weekend doing this work because I believe it's just so critical and the opportunities are really limitless. Well, and I think it highlights the importance too of building contacts. Would that be right, Elise, that in business, in in any industry, it's actually about building contacts, particularly when you're young, that that strengthens uh, your position as well in the marketplace? Yeah, so I think relationships are, are fundamental, particularly working with our counterparts in Asia. You know, we we toss up the task focus or the relationship. And obviously in Australia, we take more of the task orientated process, whereas we know engaging in Asia, you need to actually invest in the relationship first and foremost, and then the tasks come much later. But I think that we have a lot to learn from our Asian counterparts. Certainly that relationship element I see as being something that I've been able to leverage at such a young age and really uh, enable opportunities, but also use those relationships to uh, support these volunteering initiatives and other other projects. You mentioned the, the, your lovely Vietnamese family. Tell us a bit of how uh, how that evolved. Sounds like they've pretty much adopted you in as as their daughter. <laughs> I think when I first moved to Vietnam, my first week there, I was just so deeply in love with the country, like the food, the the way of living, everyone drove motorbikes and I had a, a motorbike in Australia and I was very keen to hit the roads despite the scenes that many are painted in many's minds when they think about Vietnam. But for me, I thought this is really a opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and if I was to live in a foreign country, I really want to understand what it's like to be a local. And so in my mind, the only way that I could do that is if I was to be as Vietnamese as I could, even though I clearly didn't look like it. I was much bigger. My skin colour was different. My voice was much louder. But I went out of my way to make sure that all my friends were Vietnamese and I was trying to speak to Viet uh, as regularly as possible. And I had become quite friendly with one of my dear friends, Vietnamese friends, and I had said to her, I'm really keen to do a homestay just for a month or two, you know, get to eat Vietnamese food every day and things like that. And she said, well, my sister has got a spare a spare room and you're welcome to, to come and stay. And it was from that moment I didn't even have to consider a yes or no. Uh, and, and I moved in and before I knew it, my Vietnamese dad was introducing me around the community as this is my daughter. In his little, limited English, he would translate that to me. But I know that he was incredibly proud to, you know, take me around. So I feel very blessed to have them in my life and feel very much part of my Vietnamese community in Hanoi. And you were lucky to be able to just see when the uh, coronavirus started there and you were able to get out in time before all that changed. I imagine with the borders closing, that would have been hard. So in my mind, I actually wanted to stay. And my it's interesting, different perceptions around safety and community. And my Vietnamese family said to me, we want you to stay in Vietnam because we know you'll be safe. You'll be more safe than when you go back home. And it's a really interesting perspective because my Australian family thought otherwise, that I'll be much safer in Australia. So my ticket was to come home in early February and, of course, I had to return back to our National Centre for Building Asia Capability and to work. So I did have to catch the plane home. But 
in hindsight, I reflect and think, well, actually, if we look at Australia's efforts in comparison to Vietnam, Vietnam has been far more successful than Australia. And maybe I should have taken that advice of my Vietnamese family to stay. And I'd be back to work, you know, enjoying coffee and bang me and riding my motorbike around Vietnam (laughs) right now. And when do you think that you'll be able to get back? Have you thought about it? I see that you've got, well, this might lead on well to our to this cycling tour that you have planned for a, a fundraiser. Uh, I just wonder, have you thought of what are the implications here? But maybe if Vietnam is, is coming back online, like you say, it might be able to, to happen before we know it. The cycling tour that I have planned, so it's a 2,500 kilometre cycle from the north of Vietnam to the south down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which many of us know from the Vietnamese called the American War and what we know in Australia as the Vietnam War. Uh, But essentially the idea is that we'd be cycling uh, 30 days, really exploring the the relationship between Australia and Vietnam during those 30 days with young leaders. But I think that my fitness level certainly needs to improve between now and when I do it. So I have to give myself at least a year preparation. But really excited about actually this this journey and what I see as being quite a transformational experience for young leaders uh, who, who are keen. But it is for those that are serious about cycling. <laughs> Sounds like it's a it. Long trip. <laughs> and and who who will be able to go? How how do you uh, become involved? So really, this is going to be part of our efforts with the Australia Vietnam Young Leadership Dialogue, and so there is a, a small cohort of leaders that's involved in that group. So they actually come from a diverse range of industries. There's the COO of Vietnam's Formula One, who's one of our delegates as a part of the dialogue that I talked about, and he's incredibly keen and already training for it. So there's a a select cohort, um, but really we're looking at um, still an early planning in terms of how do we involve the broader community. So maybe 21 later on in in 2021? I'm thinking 2021 is the plan. Well, Elise, thank you so much. It's just incredible to hear about your circuitous route, basically, to Melbourne. And who would have thought Melbourne could be so close to Vietnam in in so many ways? It sounds like your heart is still over there. Yeah, it very much is. But I'm I'm very happy to be, you know, working back in Australia as well and being able to share that passion and love that I have for Asia, but also for Vietnam and changing the mindset of Australians and thinking about, well, what opportunities are there to collaborate? Because there are many ways that we can connect with the region. And I think that, you know, whether it's from a trade and business point of view, but also learning environmentally and and socially from each other, I think will benefit both countries. Thank you once again, Elise. And thank you for joining us on Remarkable Tales by Skype today because of our coronavirus restrictions, as we've discussed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That was Griffith University business graduate Elise Giles speaking to me for this episode of Remarkable Tales on Skype from her Melbourne base as Capability Development Manager for Asia Link Business. Remarkable Tales is a podcast production of Griffith University. It's produced by Nance Haxton. That's it for this episode of Remarkable Tales. I'm Nance Haxton. See you next time. <laughs>